It's great to see you very quickly at my welcome to Louise's. And on the off chance that you have just arrived or arrived with little ones um, since we started earlier, if there is um, resources, then coloring stuff and pens and markers and crayons in the back family room, just down to the back right of the church where Shane is waving his head. I'm not saying that that's where you've got to go now, but if you would like to go and get some coloring stuff there, you're more than um, welcome to do that. Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Owen. I get to work with Louise and the rest of the staff to help lead the church. So it's great to have you here with us this morning. Um, we have been um, in the middle of a new teaching series. Uh, we started at the beginning of July and uh, it's going to take us right the way through to the end of this month uh, called Conversations with Jesus. And it's kind of designed, I suppose, to help us do something of a study, to look at the kinds of people that Jesus met, what Jesus said to them, what they said to Jesus, and what, ultimately what we can learn from those conversations. So if you've got a Bible open in front of you, or if you've got a Bible in front of you, open it up to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John chapter 6. Or maybe you read your Bible on your phone. That's cool if you want to take your phone out. Um, and maybe if you've got the page number, uh, shout out. And there is different... 1,069, thank you. It might be that yours is slightly different because you've got a different... 755. Okay. John 6, uh, verses 1 to 15. And Elaine is going to come and read it for us. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish, pa Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as, many, as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the, the, your word that is living and active. And we pray, Lord, that in, in the same way you inspired John to write these words, 
that you'd inspire our hearts and minds as we reflect on them together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, 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 I bet that you've already picked up on this, um, but one of the, I suppose, more obvious reflections on this text as a whole is that it has different sections and movements to it. If you want to just cast your eye across it again, it kind of flows in different sections and movements, starting with verse 4. And then we have um, Jesus' interaction with Philip and with Andrew in uh, verses 5 to 9. Then there's a a third section, uh, including verses 10 to 13. And then the whole passage, well, the passage as a whole closes with two verses, verses 14 and 15. Uh, another one of the other, I suppose, another one of the things that you see right from the get-go is there's a huge amount going on here. There's a massive amount of um, exciting language and imagery, different things that we could pick up on and teach into, but we just simply don't have time to cover everything. But to start with, what I do want us to look at as we begin is to tease, to tease apart together to sift through one of the, I suppose, one of the clues that John has left here for us, which is in verse four. So if you've got it open in front of you, look at verse four and uh, let's start there, okay? So if we think about verses one to three for a minute, what we've been told so far is that Jesus is on the move again. There's lots of movement at this point in his ministry, lots of um, people that he's meeting and he's doing all kinds of different things in different places. And uh, one of the other things, and this is a direct quote from the NLT uh, version, is that he is now at this point in his ministry attracting huge crowds. Okay, so that adds another layer and a dynamic to what's happening here. And I suppose the other piece that we pick on, the more obvi- one of the more obvious things, is that his ministry, his healing ministry, is started to kind of get a, attract a lot of attention. Okay, so the news about his miraculous healings had travelled fast. And I suppose what I, if we just press pause there, one of the things that I think I wanted to kind of lead with here as we start out is that there's a palpable sense of hunger at this point in the text. There's a palpable sense of hunger and expectation, and I want us to kind of major on that as we start. People are, we're told, ready and waiting. They're longing for the promised Messiah who would come and set everything right with them as a people. And we can pick up again on this towards the end of the text and how it references not just um, this long-awaited prophet that we can read about in Malachi 4 and in Deuteronomy 18. So people are waiting. People are longing for their Messiah to come. And then, interestingly, we kind of just get this fascinating kind of hillside teaching moment where Jesus is anticipating uh, this crowd from a distance coming toward him. And John gives us this big pointer. It was almost time for Passover. It was almost time for Passover. So this is actually huge for our thinking. There's a real danger of dismissing and just moving on into the next part of the text without giving us too much thought. But I want to use this idea, this word, this imagery of Passover as a bit of a lens for us to look at everything else in the text through. If this language is new to you, Passover is a very important Jewish festival that celebrates Israel's redemption from Israel, a very particular moment in their history as a people where God moved miraculously 
in their midst and brought them out into freedom. If you want to read about that story in more detail, you can go and look at Exodus chapter 12 on. But basically, John is setting the scene masterfully. And at this point, he's kind of inviting us to join the dots with him. He, he wants us to see that what our text from John 6 is telling us about, is pointing to, is another moment in human history where God was again moving miraculously in the midst of his people to bring about freedom and deliverance from bondage. So God is in Jesus leading his people out from underneath the bondage and slavery of sin and death. That's one of the things that John is being very deliberate in saying. So God is in Jesus leading his people out from underneath the bondage and, and slavery of sin and death. So John has us exactly where he wants us. It's almost time for Passover. He has us exactly where he wants us. This is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, who Jesus is, and it's all about what Jesus is doing. John is going to great lengths to remind us Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the one that they're waiting for, the Messiah. Jesus is the one who had come to bring deliverance, ultimate deliverance uh, from bondage and oppression. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He's the one whose blood would bring freedom and new life for all. And his life and ministry was him ushering in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. John has us exactly where he wants us. Now, seeing the crowds coming in the distance, he's sitting there in this teaching moment with his disciples. And he said, it was almost time for Passover. So I want us to take this idea of salvation and deliverance with us into the rest of the text, okay? Verses 5 to 13, the, the middle two sections, um, is, it, it kind of unpacks this idea of deliverance and salvation in a little bit more detail. Um, and um, where I want us to start with that is verse 5. So if you've got the text uh, open in front of you, turn to John chapter 6, uh, verse 5. This is where we pick up, I suppose, on the dialogue. Remember, we're talking about conversations here, that people are speaking to Jesus and speaking, Jesus is speaking back. Jesus says this, Where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Seems like a reasonable question to me. Makes sense, doesn't it? Where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Now, at this point, I think it's fair to say, if you look at how Philip is responding, he's kind of catastrophizing a bit, isn't he? He's kind of having a proper freak out. And he's completely overwhelmed by Jesus' desire to feed everyone. But it's good to be reminded. That's what God is like. That's the heart of God, that he wants to feed everyone. If you look at verse 7, we can kind of pick up on something of Philip's response. It's a bit sharp. Even if we worked for months, we're not going to have enough. Even if we work for months, we're not going to, be, we're not going to have enough. What's, what's the point? What's the point? And this word enough is important for us at this point, I want to suggest. Because on the surface... I think what Philip is saying, it, it, it makes sense, right? You're looking at something and you're realizing, actually, I don't have enough to meet that. And he's just overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed by, God, why are you asking me to meet that need with this limited resource? I, I just can't do it. 
He's having a, what Becky calls a pity party, throwing his toys out of the pram. I just can't do it. But read through the lens of salvation, remember that's what I'm wanting us to do here. I think one of the things, you know, reading this text through the lens of who Jesus is and what Jesus had come to do, what we see is something deeper is going on. Philip is faced not just with his own lack in this moment. I can't meet that need with these resources. What he's faced with also is our own lack as humanity to provide for our needs. And this is just too much. It's almost like he's saying, we can't do it. We haven't got what it takes to live apart from God. And it wasn't, it wasn't what we were designed for. And I think that's absolutely right. Deliverance and salvation and a human flourishing, sustained human flourishing, is something that only God can bring. We can't do that for ourselves. Philip is faced with what one author calls the futility of autonomy. The reality of the limited resources of life apart from God. Of human life lived apart from God. The poverty of our situation is that we can do nothing for ourselves. And in that sense, we haven't got enough. We need Jesus. To thrive and to flourish as people, we need Jesus. That's one of the things that John is saying here. Creation needs Jesus. All of humanity needs Jesus. It's a very countercultural thing to say in 2019. But seen through the lens of Passover and salvation, we're reminded again that Jesus is the one who has come, who's moved toward us to redeem everything that was lost and to show us how to live. And this idea of what what does it mean, showing us how to live, I'm going to return to that idea in a minute. But let's move on to the next part of the dialogue, verse 9, if you've got it uh, open in front of you. We don't have time to look at this in great depth, but Andrew's words here in verse 9, I think, are something of an antidote for this catastrophizing moment that Philip is having. And I think it seems to me, with what heart, it seems heartfelt honesty, Andrew says this to Jesus. There's a, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is it? What good is it with this huge crowd? It's a bit, thinking about it this week, it's a bit comical. It's like, you know, when you're having a conversation with someone and they make a suggestion and then they shoot down their suggestion before you've even got a chance to, like being at the firing range, pull, Anyone ever done that? Clay pigeon shooting, one laugh in the back, okay. But what strikes me here at this point, and I'd love you just to see the text if you've got it open in front of you, is that the miracle comes from what is offered. It doesn't come from left field or right field or just you know, magically appear. The, 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 the miracle comes from what is offered, from the small thing that is offered. I think that's a huge lesson. I, I can, you think you can feel the tension in Andrew's words. This 
is all we have. I think a lot of the time that's an obstacle for us in the church. When we think, this is all I've got. Is that any good to God? Is he interested in who I am and what I have? The answer is yes, by the way. But this is a good reminder. And I think that the reason I wanted to labor this is because I think that the simplicity of that is, seems to always be at war with the fear of not having enough. The question is, what are we going to let lead us? If we can get over the hump of trusting that God is good and for us and can use us regardless of however small or insignificant we, see, we seem to think that what we have to offer is, once we can get over that and trust that he's good and for us, I think we'll be shocked by what we see God do in and through us. But we have to be reminded, folks, that it's what it, the miracle comes from what is offered. The miracle comes from what is offered. And I think, again, seen through the lens of deliverance and salvation and Passover, we're reminded here that what we have is always better off in Jesus' hands. Always. It's not about the amount. It's about the attitude. It's about obedience. It's about doing what God tells us to do, even if it seems crazy to everybody around us. It's the heart that says, Lord, I give up my autonomy. I don't want to live apart from you. I want to live in right relationship with you. I lay aside any misplaced ideas that I have what it takes to make it on my own in life and to flourish without you. I lay them down. Lord, all I have is yours. Use me for your kingdom's sake. Let's move on. Verses 10 and 13. Definitely, I would suggest, a big gear change seems to happen in the text at this point. We've heard something of the wrestle of Philip and Andrew. And now Jesus is explaining the way that he's calling us to enter his kingdom. There's two parts to this, okay? First, in response to everything that has been said up to this point, if you've got it open in front of you, Jesus simply says this, tell everyone. Remember, we've been feeding every, he's been feeding everyone, wanting to get enough bread for everyone. And at this point, Jesus is saying, tell everyone to sit down. Sit down. Now, of course... On the surface level, there's a huge amount of logic to this request. Something really needs to be organized here. We need a bit of order so that we can do the thing that we need to get done here. And this idea of order is very important at this point. It's looking at some of the, the language here, because the original language here, because seen through the lens of Passover, these words are designed to take us back to that moment of our original creation, which we can read about in the books, the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, which is where we learn that God has not just made us for himself with the capacity for relationship with him, but that the life he calls us to has a very particular order to it. 
the order of rest and work. Rest and work. The point being that we desperately need both. There's something about us uh, in terms of our purpose and uh, flourishing that comes alive when we have purpose. But something of that is diminished if we never rest. So incredibly important to remember that. Now, I would at this point argue something that is not widely, a belief that is widely held. But I think if you look at the creation narrative, what we see is there's a particular order there. The very first thing the human community did when God created them was to rest. That's the first thing they did, having been created. They rested with God. They enjoyed his friendship and his presence. And it's out of that place, out of friendship with God, out of being in God's presence, spending time with him, enjoying him, We join in with what he's doing. We co-work with what he's doing in creation around us. It's a very, very subtle thing, but I think where you ultimately end up is a very, very different place. We start with rest. Everybody sit down. Everybody. What I have for everybody is the peace that comes from rest. I was reading reading a quote uh, this week that I thought I'd share at this point. Sabbath, which is another word for this idea of rest that we see emerging in creation. Sabbath is one of the clearest signs of the gospel. Rest is one of the clearest signs of the gospel. Why? You do nothing. You accomplish nothing. And God still loves you. I just love that idea. It's one of the clearest signs of the gospel. One of the things that will point to the world around us that there's something different about Jesus, that there's something different about the church, is that we're not worn out all the time. That there's something about our life together. There's just something different about you. What is it? rest. We know what it means to live sustainably. We're not fraying at the edges, emptying the tanks at every possible opportunity. We know how to stop. We talked about this in terms of vision back in May. One of the things that distinguish, we want to distinguish us as a community is encountering God's presence. We don't, that doesn't just happen here on a Sunday, by the way. It happens in our bedrooms, in our sitting rooms, when we're commuting to work, at our place of work, when we're at the gym, whatever is going on. Enjoying God's presence. How does that happen for you? Where do you spend time enjoying God's presence and friendship? It's going to change you and everyone else that you come into contact with. John wants us to see that God was moving miraculously in their midst again. And the way that they were being called to enter into what God was doing was not frantically working at 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 the cost of everything in us and everyone around us, but through rest, 
practicing rest, to courageously live lives rooted in rest and trust. What Jesus is saying here is sit down, stop, start with me, make me your sole focus, watch what I'm doing, how I'm moving, I've got this. If you think going back to the original creation narratives at the beginning of um, um, Genesis, there's this sense of breath of God uh, like a mother hen sitting over, brooding over what he was doing in creation and breathing on what wasn't and seeing it come into life. Jesus is saying, I'm remaking humanity. My very presence here is about remaking humanity, of seeing God's creation redeemed and restored. It's not just about five loaves and two small fish. It's about the direction of the world and of all of history. It's about so much more than what we can see at first glance. It's Jesus is saying, I'm going to provide for your needs. Follow me. Trust me. Live for me. Follow my lead. God is in Jesus leading his people out from underneath the bondage and the slavery of sin and death. Tell everyone to sit down. And this is where we're going to end. We want to look at verse 12. We've just thought about rest together, but the second piece of the shape to living that Jesus came to model is unpacked a little bit here. We're told that everyone was full. Everyone was full. And then Jesus makes this final request. If you've got it, verse 12, open again in front of you. He says, gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. Gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. Now, in my study this week, the commentaries are a little bit kind of at odds with one another about what Jesus really, really means in this particular point. We know in the broader sense, some of the study I've done has said that, you know, in Jewish history, the Jewish custom, that the preservation of food was very important. So leaving unused food around for anything to happen to it just wouldn't have been done. And that just seems to make a lot of sense to me, even before the days of recycling, all that kind of lot. But seen through the lens of Passover, I think we're reminded that the 12 baskets that are mentioned here are something of a prophetic symbol and sign to us. That what God is doing with us in this place this morning doesn't end here. God's provision for us, God's provision for this people that we're reading about here, God wasn't providing for them at that point and for them only. This idea of the baskets means that I want you to take from this place that I have provided for you and to take it to those who aren't here. To take the baskets, otherwise imagine they could have been any other device, any other kind of holding thing. A holding thing? I'm kind of let myself down on some of the language there, I think. So on the one hand, we get this picture that Jesus' resources are without limit and there's so much left over. But if we leave it there, I think we miss out. Nothing is to be wasted. Yes, that's true. But the reality here is that no one is to be forgotten. 
Nothing is to be wasted, yes, but no one is to be forgotten. What Jesus is doing here is for everyone. His desire is for all to be fed. Not just us, but everyone that our life interacts with and intersects with. Seen through the lens of Passover, we see God's call is to take the baskets from the places that he encounters and provides for us out to the people and to the places around us to provide for them. This is about the kingdom of God on the move. This is about joining in with what God is doing everywhere. And maybe that challenges our view of community and the Christian community and of church. It's not just about coming here for an hour and a half for a public worship gathering, but it's about thinking, what does it mean for me to take what God has sown in me today here in this place to others who weren't able to be here? to those who are nowhere in terms of their faith and they don't know what they believe. I think this is a big challenge. Who are the people God is calling you to bring food to? Who are the people in your lives that God is calling you to carry baskets of bread to and see them come into the kingdom themselves?